As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my friend and a real-life generational thought leader, Patrice Cullors. Patrice is a 21st century civil rights leader. She is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She's the founder of Dignity and Power Now, an LA-based grassroots organization that fights for dignity and power of all incarcerated people. And she is a tremendous contemporary performance artist and the author of the New York Times bestseller, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. We are very, very lucky to have her on the show today. So please welcome to the podcast, Patrice. Patrice, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about your podcast. It's an incredible excuse to catch up with really remarkable people like yourself. <laughs> and it uh, also gives me a reason not to just hang out, but ask you, you know, a hundred questions, which also makes me happy. Where are you today? I'm sheltering in place in my house here in Los Angeles, living in South Central and... Yeah, it's like such an interesting experience. It's been these last almost six weeks. Tell us about it. I imagine that you've had some pretty amazing reflections and uh, learnings from this period. Yeah, I mean, you know, human beings, we're, we're social and we're nomadic. And um, to not be able to be in community in the same ways physically and also not be able to have like, you know, mobility in the same ways is um, jarring. Uh, but it's also the stillness um, has uh, both, I think, created an opportunity for the world to look at the gaps. Um, you know, when we have to flip everything and your essential workers are grocery store workers or healthcare providers, like just it's perspective. And I think individually, I've been really like just battling my shadow self and like I don't get to spend this much time with myself in general. So this time has been like a, a really just profound opportunity to see the, the my own gaps as well. And like to see where, just to give myself like the time to be like, what do I want to be doing? What is, what feels important right now? What feels like 
really healing right now. And so both the world and its relationship to this moment, and then myself and my relationship to this moment, it feels like both deeply compatible and also like a lot. (laughs) I want to talk about your background and what led you to the work that you do. You're a real multi-hyphenate. You Mm -hmm. are a contemporary artist. You are a civil rights leader. You're the founder of you know, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and Dignity and Power Now, you've been, you know, a real social activist. You've been a real practical radical, which is the thing that I kind of admire the most. Mm-hmm. Not those that wear the robes or talk the shit, but actually, you know, get things done. And um, whether it was with, you know, the work that you've done for really the rights of all people, but, you know, through through the prism of Black Lives Matter and then the work that you've done, you know, I'm also here in L.A., for, you know, prison reform and criminal justice is pretty profound. But I want to know, like, what started you on this journey? Were you always an activist? Were you a 12-year-old, like, getting your classmates to rise up and walk out for (laughs) lack of rights? I was. um, I was absolutely a pretty rebellious um, child. But, like, it's funny because I really like rules and I really like structure, but I don't like oppression and I don't like subjugation. So (laughs) the rules and structure that I like is rules and structure that help support humanness and our beingness. But I couldn't stand the side of like bullying or people being hurt or people being impacted. And so um, from a child, like I was always a person who was like challenging the bully or standing up to them or I couldn't help it. My first protest ever that I staged, I, it's hard, it was hardly a protest, but in my mind it was. I was a year after high school, I was 19 years old, or I was still 18 years old. And my girlfriend and I were walking in a park and we were kissing and some homophobic dude came up to us and pretty much like yelled at us, shamed us and told us there were children here, stop kissing in the park. And we were like, stunned like I just remember my body being like oh shit like first of all I'm gonna stop because I don't know if he's gonna hurt us but second of all like how dare you tell me what to do with my body and you know with my my partner and then um you know my partner and I were just like really disconcerted and like but by the end of that evening I was like I'm calling all my friends you know this is like pre-cell phone texting social media like I'm calling all my friends I'm gonna tell them to come to my friend's house and um we ended up protesting it was five of us <laughs> yeah so it was hardly like a for real protest but it was um the fact that that was my impetus like the fact that i was like we need to get out and show people that this wrong happened like it just was always in my spirit and mm-hmm. we walked down ventura boulevard because i grew up in the valley and had had signs um you know love is love some shit like that and then we went to the park where I was harassed with my girlfriend and, and put those signs up. And um, it was, I mean, you know, I, I, I would have never imagined that two decades later I'd be leading one of the biggest social movements of this time. But I think in that moment it was healing, inspiring, um, important. And I felt like I got my agency back. And before Black Lives Matter, you were already being recognized as a transformative organizer was it around sexual rights or issues of color or like what what kind of stuff were you you know standing up for obviously this example but like what were you you know already being recognized for the first 
ever like kind of social justice work that I got into was work that was around um, climate change. I was, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was, I did climate change work for the first six years of my organizing work. And it was very eye opening. I went to the the second ever people of color summit on um, climate change. uh, And it was actually on environmental justice. Um, There was a really important, and there has been historically a really important sort of differentiation between environmentalist and environmental justice activists. Oftentimes the environmentalists are large in part white. Um, they aren't actually thinking about the black people who are growing up by fracking or um, the, the, the environmental crisis that impacts human beings are often thinking about the environmental crisis that impacts animals. And so when I entered into environmental justice work um, at, at 18 years old, I was here in Los Angeles working with the bus riders union, uh, fighting for a first class transit system and really pushing forward like the ending of the uh, of greenhouse gases, which is essentially one of the main toxins that come out of your tailpipe. This is me getting really science nerd climate change. Yeah, no, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) Toxins, I'm with it. (laughs) Carbon monoxide. Exactly. And we were calling for the the cutting in half of the of the auto in LA, which is, you know, auto is king here. And so we were we wanted to reduce push to reduce greenhouse gases by fifty percent. And we wanted a first class bu- bu- bus system that had that used clean air and um all the like new buses, all the clean air buses we that that was our fight that was the work that we did and it was really beautiful it took me it took me across the country it made me um uh it really um pushed me to be in deep connection with indigenous communities in this country and across the world um indigenous communities i would say are the first environmental justice activists um and so i followed a lot of their work um and their lead and um uh, you know, folks like Tom Goldtooth, um, just really like amazing leaders in this space. And and from there, after six years, and inside the same organization, after six years of environmental justice work, I had always been pushing the org um, to look at the issues of state violence and police. Um, actually, when I first joined the organization, my very, very first question to them was, do you do any work around challenging the police? And they're like, no, that's not what we do. We're an environmental justice org, and I was like, "Well, that's okay. I like need. I need. I need a political home. I'm gonna join your organization. I like what you're talking about." But um, after six years, we actually started the, the the community rights campaign, which would be the first sort of state, the first campaign to to look at policing, and it was looking at um, the Los Angeles School Police Department and and the role it played in criminalizing young people. Mm-hmm. And was your was your family already touched by that? criminalization at this stage? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Van Nuys, um, a small suburb outside of the inner city of Los Angeles. It's still Los Angeles. People don't realize the Valley is still LA city, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not the inner city. Um, And in Van Nuys, I just, I witnessed over-policing. The only resource our community was given was police. Um, we had a dedicated police officer to our block, um, a dedicated police officer to the children in our block, and he knew all our names. We knew we knew his name. 
he now, you know, then it was like, um, when you're a child, you don't realize what something is, you know, the, the sinister nature. Now I look back and I was like, he was surveilling us. He was surveilling every mm. single child in the neighborhood. And I wish, you know, I wish I had, I wish we had a dignity and power and our youth justice coalition or black lives matter them, because I think we would have learned almost, I, I can argue a hundred percent of the young boys of color in my neighborhood were arrested at least once. And at least more than half of them ended up in juvenile hall. Most of them didn't graduate from high school. Uh, it was an impossible environment to thrive as a young person because everything a young person did in that neighborhood was criminalized. And so if we were hanging yeah. out in front of our house, if um, I remember, you know, one night and my brothers were probably drinking. So yes, underage drinking is illegal. But I remember the helicopter police, you know, Los Angeles uses helicopter policing as one of its primary modes of policing. And I remember it was probably like in my child brain, it was probably two in the morning. Who knows if it was that that late? But I just remember like hearing the helicopter almost like next to our building. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for people who live on the East Coast, they're kind of used to like, you know, when we say, when you all say buildings, I don't, are you from the East Coast, Jeff? I don't even know. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Okay. So you're from the South. Um, but when folks from the East Coast hear buildings, they think like, you know, hundred stories like that's not you know la is not that la is like a, just like a huge ass sprawl so this is like yeah. a two-story building and the helicopter is sort of like hovering over and all of a sudden i hear like at, from the microphone you know like get out of the bushes and i was obviously wasn't allowed to go outside i was too young but what i would find out just by like snoop stooping around is that the helicopter police had like, you know, they called the helicopter police on my two child children brothers. They were probably 13 or 14. And so this kind of level of harassment was so day to day that it, I think most of us were numb to it, even though we understood that it was not okay and not acceptable. Um, and then I think what we recognized or what I recognized as I got older and as I saw the devastating impact, you know, of policing children, of surveilling children, of caging children had um, on adults, I started to realize like, oh my goodness, like all of these children, including my brothers, were set up to fail. Mm -hmm. um, there was no infrastructure for them. There was no, there was no safety net for them. And there was nothing for my mother or the people in our community to try to we had no tools to try to change and challenge what was happening. It was just, it was just a lot of devastation. It was a lot, a lot of devastation. And so that was a framework for me and, 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 and starting to do the other work that I did. It totally. And these, these things have spiral dynamics, right? These things build on top of themselves. And when that's your childhood, you know, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future, right? Is a, mm -hmm. is a quote that, that, bumps around my head quite a bit. And like, I think that more re realistically, your environment has such an incredible determinant on, you know, the mean, the average of where people end up. And I remember, you know, my first exposure to sort of the abuses of criminal justice and juvenile justice um, was, you know, about 10 years ago, Scott Budnick took me to the Pasadena Juvenile Detention Center mm -hmm. to one of the anti-recidivism coalition writing classes. Mm -hmm. And I met these kids who were like smarter and cooler 
And now through the reflective period they had gotten from, you know, being in lockup, where at first they're kind of celebrated for, you know, what happened and then their friends stop coming and then their girlfriend stops coming and then their parents stop coming and they're all alone. And, and, you know, the best advice I had heard from people that, you know, were working with these kids was like, Hey, if you want to change your life, when you get out, you can't go back, you can't go back to the environment, you know, that ended up resulting in this. And so my question for you is like, you know, you, you describe this environment and I want to get back to the work, but I'm just curious for you personally, you know, like you were a Fulbright scholar, you were an activist, you saw this happening and your response wasn't like, well, I'm going to join in. Your response was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up. Um, what do you think was the difference maker for you? Was it a parent? Was it, you know, a mentor? Was it just you personally? What do you think it was that drove you to be different? I had art. <laughs> I had art. Really? As a, as a young person? Yeah, I was, um, I was labeled as gifted at a really young age. And so I was tracked differently than the rest of my siblings. And um, it meant that my schooling was completely different. I didn't, I did not go to the same schools as my siblings did. They went to all the home schools and I ended up going to, um, mostly all magnet programs. So that, you know, in retrospect, um, and I write about it pretty intensively in my memoir, just imagine growing up in the same house in the same neighborhood, but being completely tracked differently from your siblings based off of a label like it being gifted. And in that tracking, I came across people who, who saw me as a human being and who were really interested in my development. Mind you, it didn't mean that I didn't end up in a different kind of trouble. The one time I did have to go to my siblings homeschool, it was the, it was the one time I was actually arrested on campus. I was 12 years old Someone had said that I had been. Um, no selling. way. Yes, I was. I was in summer school. It was summer school from seventh grade to eighth grade. Um, I had, it was the first time I went off to some. I went off to this magnet program. I was mostly around white kids. It was the first time ever I was around that many white kids. It was like very um, jarring for me. I I think I failed math or something, and so I had to go to summer school. And so I went to summer school. I went to Van Nuys Middle School. Um, and, uh, in the process of being in middle school, I mean, in that, in that summer school, it was like a different environment. I went from like this very, I was in a, in a performing arts school. So I went from this like, really like liberating, freeing place. And then I go to Van Nuys and it, it was literally a lot lockdown, like the, the actual difference of, of my education of, you know, there was police on campus. That was not the case with Milliken and, I remember going to my class, I think it was my science class, an officer showing up, whispering to the teacher, the teacher telling me to stand up, and then the officer putting me in handcuffs and walking me down the hallway and telling me why she was arresting me and she searched my backpack, didn't find anything, made me call my mother and tell them you know, that, that they had arrested me or they had um, detained me for the possibility of, of selling or you know, smoking weed on campus. And after that, I was like, it wasn't even conscious, but I was like, oh, like this, this could be my life. And so I'm going to do the opposite and be in the opposite places than the places that impacted my siblings and, and their friends. And so while I lived in the same neighborhood, I didn't really hang out in the same places. I, I had a whole different set of friends. I had 
you know, a whole different, you know, I had art, I was dancing all the time. I was, I had a lot of after school programming. And so I saw the difference of what having not even a hobby, but like a passion did for me and, and how it impacted how I understood the world and what, what I wanted to do for myself. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was heavily benefited from your dual understanding of both, you know, this social justice impact, uh, civil rights side of things and art and, you know, the ability to take really complex ideas and civilize them or make them participatory. I did, um, with you, uh, something that you called theater of oppression, 
where mm-hmm. you sort of walked us through and we, you know, person personified these different emotions and experiences using our own bodies, using our own facial expressions. Um, and I want to get to, you know, sort of the provenance of black lives matter and, and the work you're doing today. And, and I intended to get to the, you know, this creative overlap later in the interview, but it's just so fascinating to me that you had this foundation of art and this Mm -hmm. understanding of, you know, telling bigger stories through, you know, this, this medium. And I I just didn't know that when you started BLM and when you guys co-founded that, um, that that was already something that was, you know, part of your toolbox. Absolutely. I mean, I started to, you know, I think I started to be noticed as an artist at a really young age. My great grandmother, who helped raise us with my mom, um, you know, we used to put on like fashion shows for her and dance and sing for her. And she used to always tell me, you really need to be in dance classes. And so by the time I ended up getting into um, the my junior high's performing arts magnet program, um, it was already really instilled in me, like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I am, uh, this is like the work I'm doing. And so I, I stayed dancing all through junior high school and high school, and then ended up joining a dance company, uh, West Coast Dance Theater in Northridge, and traveled the world, traveled, you know, um, was on a cruise boat and danced on it and traveled no way Florida yeah so different part of my life and (laughs) (laughs) and like totally was like this is gonna like I'm gonna be this is the world I'm gonna live in and was really sort of like on a track towards um told so totally like on the track towards like Hollywood dance and then um and then I and then I became politicized in high school I went to I went to social justice high school and 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 while I was also dancing, I was I was learning about Audre Lorde and the Panther Party. And, mm-hmm. and as I became politicized, I started to realize, I started to look around me and started to like look at my life and what was happening. And I started to be like, oh, actually like we're poor, not because it's, it's me and my, it's my mom or, or I's fault. We're, we're being criminalized, not because it's our fault. And I also started to recognize like that the track of dancing and the kind of art I was making was so depoliticized. And that was, it was actually, you know, really at some point, um, it was very, it was very gendered. The dance world's very gendered. It was, um, I felt really started to feel very um, used in a particular way. Like my body was used in a way that I didn't want it to be used. And so I, I, I was like, I'm going to keep making art and I'm going to keep dancing, but I'm not going to dance in the ways that they want me to. And so I, I kind of like, I, I steered the ship in a different direction and, and as I steered the ship towards politics, I was like, but I'm still an artist. Um, and this is similar to our good friend, Mike De La Rocha, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're still artists, but we're deeply political. And those two worlds mean the those two worlds are our worlds. And I was hell-bent on figuring out how to continue being who I was while also developing a, a new um, politic. And so that's that's my story around art. And I actually studied with Augusta Boal, which is so mind blowing, the, the the creator and founder of Theater of the Oppressed. I studied with him mm. 18 years old up until I was about 21 years old and then he passed away. But I, I studied with him and then I studied with his protege, um, Brent Blair, who lives here in Los Angeles. Um, Augusta Boal used to come to USC all the time and do a bunch of theater press workshops. And so I did my first workshop with him and fell in love 
with the practice. Um, but art has always, always, always been my foundation because it's it's the thing that saved me, I think, from the world that I lived in. And it's also the thing that I always go back to no matter what I'm working on. What were, what were, so, and I know, you know, BLM started in 2013 mm-hmm. after Trayvon Martin's murder mm-hmm. and it, it was an un- unbelievable exponential ride for you. I'm mm-hmm. certain because I know within two years you were being honored by the president and, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, everyone in the world knew what BLM was. Um, what were some of the early moments that, you know, let you know that informed you that that this was something serious, that this was going to have a real impact? You know, I always, so such a great question. I'm always measured um, the moment by the people's relationship to Black Lives Matter. And then I think once I started, we started to get awarded, you know, glamour women of the, of the world. And then, you know, all of these different um, accolades, then I started to be like, oh, we, we, I think we did something that like changed the globe. Like, I think this is going to be in history books. Um, but the first sign of like importance to me was people using Black Lives Matter, both online, like watching the the hashtag go viral, but also people who I really respect and trust, like Angela Davis and, you know, Melissa Harris Perry and talking about it on, on, in the news and referencing us in their speeches. And I was like, oh, are the people that I look up to, the people that I adore are praising us. Um, and it's still to this day, I just, I'm, we're in the middle of, of suing the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the County Board of Supervisors for overcrowding of the jails right now in this COVID-19 moment. And mm-hmm. um, Terry Coopers, who's this, head psychiatrist who was actually one of the first psychiatrists to come out against the building of a mental health jail. He's a part of the, he was a, we, him and I were part of a panel this weekend and he sent an email to all the panelists thanking us. And I wrote him and I was like, he's like a big hero to me. Like I couldn't believe it. I was like, Oh my God, I'm on a panel with Terry Coopers. And I wrote him back and I was like, I, I love that. That's your celebrity. That's how I know that you're real as shit. You're not like, yo, I met Beyonce. You're like, Hey, let me tell you about Terry Coopers, the head of psychology for the LA jails. Okay. So I like, I like emailed him and I'm like, thank you so much. You have no idea. I was like, literally your work was the work we went to when we were, you know, the when we were first at the beginning, I know we're going to talk about the jail fight, but like at the beginning of the jail fight, when like nobody cared about it, he was the person who's this like lead psychiatrist. Like, you know, he has like, he's a big deal. And he was saying, do not build this jail, like as a psychiatrist. And we went to his, we went back to his writings all the time. And then he personally wrote me back and he was like, it is such an honor to be, to, to be seen by you. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, so those are the moments when my peer group and people and like the people who I just have been using their work for so long, look back to me and say what you, what you've done and how you've done it has inspired me and continues to inspire me. I think those were those moments. Um, and then of course the awards are really kind. Like I really appreciate them. You know, we got to go to Australia and get the Sydney peace prize. Um, I love that by the way, because that's the, <laughs> that's such an incredible example of it going so global. I mean, it was, I remember when we got the email and I was like, are you serious? Like, and, and obviously I had never been to Australia. And so, and they were, they were ready for us. I mean, we got the key to Sydney. Like we got the key to the city of Sydney. We were, 
the whole city of Sydney stops for this this thing, this this award ceremony. It's similar to the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, Tarana Burke actually got the the Sydney Peace Prize right after us. But you know, m- most importantly, Jeff, and I think what's important for people who are listening, it's like all the awards and all the praise means nothing if nothing's changed. And mm-hmm. for me, my measure is is changing the material conditions for the people who are most most marginalized in this country. And so if I'm moving the needle just a little bit, if I've created a new policy that opens up space for people who are um, impacted by policing and incarceration, if I've created more space for Black people to have honest dialogue around race and racism in this country, that's actually what I feel most moved by. Because there's like I can't, I can't change racism with the awards I get. I can't change racism with praise. Mm. Um, and so I really appreciate it. I feel honored by what we've been, how we've been honored. Like people don't get honored like that in their lifetime, you know? And we've been honored as young people. I mean, we were 28. I was 28 when Black Lives Matter, when we started Black Lives Matter. So like that's been very powerful to see that. And, you know, my measure is is not the awards. It's always like, how am I changing the material conditions? Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. 
And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that, you know, generationally, your organization and you and your collaborators definitely changed. At least, you know, I think about from, from myself as a white man, you know, I, and I reflect on our relationship, you've been very gentle and um, patient mm-hmm. uh, with your one-on-one conversations and, the, and your ability to let people sort of recognize their hypocrisy themselves or to kind of come to their own realizations. Um, this is on a personal level. I remember you explaining to me, you're like, look, Black Lives Matter. Uh, like, of course, all lives matter. But if you went to a street, and one house was on fire, okay. you'd probably want the fire department to focus on that house first, right? Yep. I was like, huh. And, and I think that we didn't realize, like one of the things that comes to my mind, this, you know, these other, these other sort of like maxims, abundance versus scarcity. Like how do you get into an abundant mentality versus a scarce mentality? I guess I never realized how much of a luxury and a privilege it was to, to assume that I could just like meet random strangers mm-hmm. and that things would not only go well, but they would have my best interest at heart mm-hmm. and at mind. Like that is such an example of just a, of a, you know, very comfortable life lived. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, for, for me, I'm curious. So like, you know, you talked about the, the measurement by, you know, what it truly did for the people that you were serving and, you know, um, how it has changed people's thinking. When, when you look back, do you, do you think that it has had um, your desired impact? Do you, do you think that there's some major steps that still remain to be done? And, and I'm curious if there's any regrets or there's anything you would have done differently. Oh, so many things, but you only do what you know. Um, yeah, I mean, does it have, I, I wish, I always wish we could do more. Um, I wish, but you know, I wish we could have stopped police brutality. I wish we could have, um, you know, renegotiated how much money police were getting. I think I wish there were so many things, but all that to say, I'm incredibly grateful for the what a what a movement does is it is it inspires others to do more. Um, Black Lives Matter is never going to be the end or the beginning of of a of, of a of a black civil rights movement. No, this is we're part of a long legacy of black people who have been fighting for our freedom for hundreds of years. And so this iteration of that was, was one form of that. And I think what's important for people who start things is to always realize that you may start it, but you may not finish it. Um, You will not finish it because it's not your job to finish it. It's your job to start, to develop, um, to, to curate, to create, and then, to continue and and let the next generation develop it. And so I feel very grateful for everything we've done. Um, Our job was to not just have a domestic movement. Our job was to to build out a global movement for Black people. And and we did that. Um, There isn't a Black person in the world that that I can go to that 
that if I say Black Lives Matter, they won't know what it is. And that, mm-hmm. it's like we have a shared language. Um, when I went to Australia, the the power of, of meeting other Black people and them saying, we've, you know, we've been waiting for you. You know, we remember when Malcolm came here. I mean, it, it's like we we've become historical leaders in that in that part. And I feel most excited that we're Black women, um, mm-hmm. uh, that the next generation of leadership gets to see Black women at the forefront of a movement. And that, to me, is, is incredibly powerful. Do you think BLM will be in the history books as, as part of that story, like the civil rights movements of the 60s? Absolutely. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get a student or a professor letting me know that they're teaching about us, that they're teaching my book, that they're, you know, I think Alicia's book is coming out in October. I'm pretty sure her, her, her book will definitely be taught. I mean, there just isn't a moment in, in which that isn't the case. Um, and I think that that feels, that feels really powerful. Some of these things that you're talking about, I'm just so curious. What are the things that you think American politics will regret not paying more attention to today? race. (laughs) You know, I think there's no way we would have been able to get a Trump in office uh, if it weren't for the deep-seated white supremacy and racism that exists in this country. Um, The fear that people had with a Black president, um, the fear people had with Black people uprising, and then clearly the backlash, right, um, of, of Donald of Donald Trump of 45, I think it becomes um, so obvious. Uh, and so, you know, I think as we witness protesters in this moment protesting um, COVID-19 restrictions and risking their lives because of it, really what we're seeing is, you know, right-wing people who are uninterested in the health and livelihood of people who are most vulnerable. Uh, We know that um, what's happening right now with COVID-19, Black people are the most impacted. And the fact that there are people who are saying that we should should be able to do what we want um, is so incredibly an example of American individualism. It's just so disturbing. And so, yeah, I think... Americans are going to look back and be like, what was wrong with us? Why couldn't, why don't we see ourselves as part of a global community instead of as individual Americans? Adam Curtis calls it the century of self. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And do you think, do you think America in 2020 still has aspects of, you know, a city on a hill uh, for the rest of the world to look to, or was it ever? Is that just a, is that just a narrative? It's a good question. I think part of what, is the great myth of America is that we, you know, and I say we, cause we collectively have created a, a sort of like, look at us, like we know all. And then, you know, my first time leaving the country, I was like, oh my God, like these, these other places are so much more, <laughs> they're so much more humane. Um, when I was seven months pregnant in Canada, visiting Future's family, I, I was, um, had like these really bad, pains and I went to the clinic they didn't ask me so you know in the states when you go to the hospital the first place you go to is where when you enter the hospital you go to billing and this clinic not a single person asked me about money 
I was like seven months pregnant. I saw a midwife. She was incredible, amazing. Within 30 minutes, I was transferred to go get ultrasound. 30 minutes, like not three hours, two hours, four hours, five hours, six hours, eight hours. And then after that, like, you know, they did all these things for free. It happened for free. Like never got a single bill. And then um, after I had Shine, I got a call from the midwife in Canada six months later, checking up on me. Do you think Kaiser has ever checked up on me and my child? <laughs> I, be- I don't believe so, no. <laughs> so like this idea that America has it all together and that we are, you know, we're the best nation, it's always been a myth. It's the myth that has created America and we've all lifted the myth up, you know, but literally just stepping out, you know, one country over opened my eyes to a whole new way of how you can be with your citizens. Do you believe in karma? Absolutely. I've believed in it even since I was a child um, and I grew up Jehovah's Witness. So I didn't know that. Oh my God. Yeah. That's like a whole nother podcast. I just just watched Unorthodox on on, uh, Netflix and I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that not as I mean, not as many ritual rules, but that kind of like very structured, very like we don't talk to the people outside of the world. We only talk to our people. We are the chosen people. Like that's the kind of world I grew up in. Um, and it's very smothering and, and very it's very smothering and also incredibly disturbing. It was for me, especially for who what my spirit is. Mm-hmm. But I believed in karma as a kid. And I remember when I first learned of the concept, I was like, oh yeah, like absolutely. I think, and, and, and I'd love for you to tell us more about the work you're doing today with resist and with, with you know, the prison reform work. Um, and, and then I want to transition. I, you know, your, your contemporary art is amazing and I've really been enjoying your work recently. Oh. Um, will you tell, will you tell us a little bit more about what you've been spending your time on? For the last 12 months, 18 months? Yeah, I mean, um, I was a part of a crew of people who started two organizations, Justice LA, um, which was uh, which is an, a coalition of groups across Los Angeles County and the country um, fighting to uh, stop the $3.5 billion jail plan, which we did, and to redirect... Thank you and congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Redirect those dollars into um, community-based services, and then I led, I chaired a ballot measure called Reform LA Jails, where we um, got seventy-two percent of the vote. We won in a landslide. A million three hundred thousand people voted yes on our in Los Angeles County, um, uh, and uh, yes on our is now law. Uh, it's it's grants the current Civilian Oversight Commission of the Sheriff's Department subpoena power. It's also making that commission build out a feasibility um, study to decarcerate the jails. And so I feel very, very proud of that work. It's probably some of my best legislative and policy work. And it's it's the thing I was saying earlier in this conversation, which is the awards are not gonna be the things that measure my success. Um, These kinds of moments of stopping a jail, of creating new laws that that open up the space for people to um, 
get the things that they need, that that's going to be the measure of my success. So I feel I'm still, even though we're in, in coronavirus land, <laughs> I'm still incredibly proud. We didn't really get to celebrate the, the measure our win and, and victory, but I'm feeling incredibly proud right now. And tell us about your artwork. The last piece I did was a piece that was dedicated to my brother, Monty, who is um, schizophrenic and bipolar. He is um, one of, was one of my first best friends, um, big mentor of mine. And I created a set of wings, uh, animatronic wings. So they, um, they, they went up and down and they were these they were made out of his used clothing and my brother's clothes and uh, they had about a 12 feet uh, wingspan and uh, I used uh, a James Baldwin speech about what was happening in America at the time which is very if you listen to that speech you're like oh it's it's the same America and um, I also interspersed the readings of, of Reform LA Jail's uh, law and James Baldwin. And so I pre-recorded that. And then we did a, we had like a soundscape in the background. And, um, and then I built, and I built a big nest. And uh, <laughs> I love this. every time I like describe my art, people are like, wait, okay. And there was like a bunch of salt and then there was honey. And, um, <laughs> so the, the actual uh, piece was for the Broads, um, Allegories of Flight. Um, it was in, mm. in collaboration with Shireen Nasat, an Iranian artist, um, her retrospective. And so I... I turned into a bird. I built a I built a big old bird that had a bird's nest on my head and and I created this one hour piece was me building out this nest while we listened to James Baldwin and Reform LA Gels. And the piece is really um in conversation with the just how we understand um the intersections of criminalization, uh the intersections of um, mental illness, um, and then like living in a place like Los Angeles, which is my home, that has honestly felt so not like my home. Um, it's felt like a place that has attacked me and my family. Like, how do you build home here? And so that I I studied bird nests and I studied the building of nests for hours and hours on end before I use this piece. And if you've ever witnessed birds and building their nest, they're, they're steadfast. Like nothing can stop them from building their nest and like building home for their family. And that's what I feel like I've done with my work because be, because my work has not just been about um, these like people I don't know. You know, much of my work, it really centers on my brother, my family, my community. And I've built this net, I've built this nest that has looked like policies and organizations so that we could have a home in a place that has not allowed us to have a home. I love it. What an amazing metaphor for the work that you do. Thank you. And, and how you focus your time. And to that end, it's this, you know, new manifestation or visual experience that, that can give people an insight to these overlapping complexities that lead to the issues that face us. Mm. And, you know, I think that you're, you know, that to civilize these complex ideas, to take them and form them in a way, whether they're, you know, in your activism or in your art, 
that make them relatable to people to that allow us to understand um, is a really hard thing to do. You know, I think it's and to that end, I'm curious, what, what do you see as your greatest talent or talents? Bringing people together, gathering the team, gathering the community. Um, I'm a big believer like in community. It's why, yeah, it's why I, I live the life that I live. I don't, I'm not, I'm not really, I love politics, like don't get me wrong. Um, but what I love most is the gathering of human beings and us doing powerful things together. That excites me the most. And do we make our own luck? Hmm. Yes or no. I think we can. I think we can sort of like, depending on who we are in relationship to and how we are in relationship to them, we can build off of how we are, how people are doing amazing things. Like I love being around other people who are doing amazing things. It inspires me. But the reality is, is that we don't always control who we can be around. Um, we, we control, usually it's our circumstances that has to do with race, class, gender, geography. And so um, I could see how, you know, I grew up in the same household and I was able to be around a whole different set of people only by circumstance, um, whereas my, my siblings were not able to do that. I, and I'm sorry for the lightning round questions, but this is my favorite part. I get to just learn, uh, you know, from from you in this moment. And you and I and you you don't you can always just say pass, but I don't think I've asked anything too risque. Um, I am curious, you know, as uh, one of your you know uh, white friends, uh, you know, like, and I don't I don't self define as like white. Jewish American. It's not like, it's not really about your internal self-definition, but I, I, you know, am liberal and left-leaning, especially socially. What are some of the blind spots that folks like myself still have? Like we want to be allies, we're educating ourselves, but I'm certain that, you know, our practice doesn't always measure uh, with our, with what we preach. I know that, you know, the woke left can be a, a great danger to all liberal causes. Um, how does that strike you? What are the things that come to mind? And you can be honest. Sure. I mean, I think um, in general, um, what happens, I think, with whiteness is um, whiteness is taught that it's the norm and that it can be in any space and communicate about anything and take up a lot of space. And I think in, that's like one of the biggest, it doesn't matter like if you've sort of been politicize and if you're sort of growing in your anti-racist like understanding I think in general white people just take up a whole lot more space than people of color or women do because we're trained not to take up space we're trained to be quiet to be in the corner to be in the back don't talk too much and so um it's just a training thing like I can be sort of in community I can you know whenever I go speak at a university or anything like that always, always doesn't matter. The first persons to raise their hand are white people. Like they just can't help themselves. It's actually, I don't, I don't see it as, there's no judgment there. It's just the way you're trained. If you're trained to, that your opinion matters, that you should be speaking up, that you should be speaking up so that you get your point across, that you can get your needs met. But you're, but the other person next to you is trained, you know, don't talk too much because if you talk too much, they're going to notice. And then you're going to, they're going to think that you're uppity or they're going to think that, you know, those are two different things being communicated to you. And so uh, I think that that is very like 
I think being aware of where you're at, the environment that you're in, and how much you're taking up space and how much you're and how much other people aren't taking up space. Like I always love the white person who's like, okay, I'm gonna actually let this person go because I've spoken up too much. Or I like those are like small socialization things, but I think they go a long way, especially as we're building community together. Well, and it's so funny you mentioned we're taught essentially from our experiences, right? Like ready, fire, aim has exactly right. worked for me. <laughs> and uh, I remember meeting Philip Agnew for the first time, Umisela, and spending a little bit of time with him, the founder of Dream Defenders. Um, and it struck me how brilliant he is and how educated, but specifically educated and self-educated. Yeah. And I realized, I was like, you know, man, I haven't, because, you know, of my privilege, I can just talk some shit and people will just correct me and we'll keep rolling. Whereas like many of my, you know, friends who who are of color don't have that luxury. They have to speak, you know, very much informed, you know, because there's both what you're describing and it's sort of the representative weight, right? It's like, I'm representing myself. Whereas like you have this additional burden of, you know, representing all black women with your response to this question or something. Right. So it's like, I think there's a lot more pressure, but that's really, really great insight and advice. Thank you. You know, I, I, I want to be respectful of our time and this has been such an amazing interview, but I was, you know, in my research for this, I was reading that you, you know, we mentioned Angela Davis and we mentioned some of these other, you know, luminaries, the shoulders in which we all stand on top of, but you mentioned Harriet Tubman and I want to know why is Harriet Tubman a G? Why was she, why was she such a huge inspiration to you? Oh, my wife, Harriet. Um, I, you know, I, she was always a huge inspiration for me. Like even as a child, um, I think it was like the description of her, like she was super, she was described as like, um, just hard and, um, really resolute and really clear. And um, I think one of the things that was like really resounding for me was, was her visions. Um, You know, she was, she suffered from narcolepsy and she would um, fall asleep during the moments where she would be freeing people. And in those sleep spells, that's by the way, that is hysterical. So you're telling me she's free people and just fall people like, yo, Ariel, come on, come on, not the time. Yes, she was a narcolept. She was a narcolept. Oh wow. And so she would um she would fall asleep while she was freeing people and people would be like, Carrie, it's asleep. But when she would wake up, she would have she would have had a vision around like what was the next step for them to go. And you know, she never lost a passenger on the Underground Railroad. So that was like really profound to me. Like this woman who was arguably illiterate, um, could read, could write, but she could see and she could see freedom. And she, um, she led, she led in that way. And it was really powerful. Oh, I love that. And do, do you have a legacy that you want to leave? Is there something that you want the world to know about you personally? Like what, what, what would you like to be known for? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, that I tried really hard, <laughs> that I tried really hard to create a set of conditions for the next generation of leaders to do badass work and to be in the community and to be artists and activists and change makers. You're a world changer. You're a historic rights leader for women, for people of color, for our generation. And I'm really flattered that you took the time to come on the podcast. And, you know, you have my word that I'm committed to, you know, supporting you and 
doing what I can for these causes that are going to benefit all of us. Um, so thank you again. Really appreciate you being here. This is amazing. Thank you so much. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.